Welcome to the Life Course Podcast from the ESRC International Centre for Life Course Studies at UCL. In today's episode, we're discussing getting to grips with multiple sclerosis. Our guests are Scott Montgomery from the Rebro University and the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, who's been researching MS for more than 20 years. Helen Andrew, who's been diagnosed with MS. And David Coots, Senior Research Manager at the MS Society. I started by asking Scott what it was about MS as a researcher that caught his interest more than two decades ago? Well, it's not a common disease, of course, but it is a significant one and one that strikes in early adulthood, typically. And it's a challenge because there are, we don't know in great detail about the triggers of the disease and other aspects of the disease process. So it does remain rather enigmatic. One challenge is the long duration between a disease trigger and the diagnosis. You have to look back several years, quite often a large number of years, to make that connection. And of course, as well, there are other health problems that people with uh, multiple sclerosis suffer. And in the run up to a diagnosis, it's not initially understood that these other conditions are caused by MS. So what aspect of MS was it that you wanted to really get to the, the bottom of when you first started looking at MS? Well, really to understand the risk factors and cause of the disease, because a better understanding means earlier diagnosis, earlier appropriate treatment, and of course, in an ideal world, although incredibly challenging, moving towards prevention. And as well as that, it's important to look at things that happen after diagnosis that are important in the management and monitoring of people who have the disease, such as preventing serious infections or treating other diseases and problems associated with MS that are caused effectively by MS. Now, this is something you've been looking at for well over 20 years. In terms of sort of broad findings, what would you say are the key things to have emerged from your research that that we didn't know before? Okay, so I, I shall pick a few. We were the first to show convincingly that inflammation in the brain caused by a blow to the head, concussion, could trigger the autoimmune process that leads to the progressive demyelination that results in multiple sclerosis. And the more blows to the head that people have had, the greater the risk. And one thing we've seen across our projects is that exposure in adolescence is particularly important. Whereas concussion in earlier childhood was not associated with MS, concussion after age 11 and onwards, that was indeed a risk. And we saw that long period, as we do in many studies, between the exposure and the outcome. I know you look to see whether undiagnosed MS itself might be responsible in some way for falls causing concussion, rather than the concussion being in some way responsible for the MS. How did you check for that? Well, we looked at a control disease or set of diseases, broken arms and legs. And that would tell us, okay, if people are falling more often, we will see more fractures. And we didn't see that association. These fractures weren't associated with MS, but uh, concussion was. So this is yet another reason to encourage teenagers to protect their head and their spine during accidents. And this idea of adolescence being a key point in people's lives was something you looked at uh, at again, wasn't it? Uh, We did a, a smaller study and found that pneumonia in adolescence, particularly around the ages of puberty, was associated with MS. Now, if we'd looked at pneumonia at all ages, we wouldn't see this. It's an age specific effect. But why should a lung infection cause inflammation in the brain and thus trigger MS? Well, of course, some infectious agents we know can enter the brain and cause inflammation directly. 
it may also be possible that some immune cells called T cells are programmed or licensed in the lungs and then are able to travel into the brain, increasing the level of inflammation there. So this finding with pneumonia led us to look at infections more broadly. And so we looked at serious infections amongst two and a half million people. And one novel finding there was that direct infections of the central nervous system of the brain and the spinal cord increased the risk of MS significantly. Now, of course, that makes sense because it's inflammation actually in the brain, possibly tr tr uh, triggering the autoimmune process leading to MS. But infections of other parts of the body were associated with raised risk. Respiratory infections, infections of the lung, we found again, increased risk. And it was both viral and bacterial infections. And it wasn't explained by greater susceptibility to uh, Epstein-Barr virus infection, which has long been linked with MS. So we see that various infections in adolescence between the ages of 11 and 20, but not all infections, increase the risk of MS. Right. And one of your most recent pieces of research has found a really strong link between having glandular fever as a teenager and an MS diagnosis later on. Tell us exactly what you found there. Epstein-Barr virus, EBV, the cause of glandular fever, also called infectious mononucleosis, has long been implicated as a risk for MS. But actually is infectious mononucleosis, glandular fever, the acute disease caused by EBV, a true risk factor. Because it's been argued by some scientists that if you have a genetic predisposition for MS, you are also more likely to have more aggressive symptoms of glandular fever instead of perhaps having no symptoms at all. So if that were the case, EBV wouldn't be causing MS. It would just be the case that somebody susceptible to having MS show, would show the symptoms of glandular fever more readily. So it would be a consequence of the gene, your genes increasing risk of both infectious mononucleosis and MS. It's also been argued that other family characteristics influence both glandular fever risk an MS risk, so that infectious mononucleosis is just a marker of these family characteristics rather than being a true risk. And um, what did you do to try to get to the bottom of all of that? We performed a large study that compared siblings in the same families, brothers and sisters, with each other. As siblings share quite a few familial environmental characteristics and also many genetic characteristics. So this study involved two and a half million people of whom nearly 6,000 had MS. We also had information on their parents so that we could identify families and, and that's what made sibling comparison possible. So the association of infectious mononucleosis at adolescence with MS subsequently wasn't reduced in the sibling comparison analysis compared with a conventional approach. So this told us that infectious mononucleosis is indeed a true risk factor for MS, but it's not just exposure to EBV per se that results in MS, because we're all exposed to, the, to this virus, or nearly all of us anyway. So it's characteristics of the exposure that matter. The age and the severity are likely to be important. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. And a really important finding, Scott. Now, Helen, um, I know uh, I'm going to ask you in a moment what you sort of make of some of Scott's findings. I know you're really interested in them, but I wonder whether you would just take a, a moment to talk us through a little bit about how you found out that you had multiple sclerosis. So I was quite poorly for a number of years, headaches, aches and pains, 
my mum said I always had complained of leg pain when I was a teenager. So I had spinal decompression at in my 20s, a major back operation then. Had dye injected to find out what was wrong with me. Then I had this spinal operation and was told in my later years that it's salvage surgery now and that they wouldn't have done it. But obviously guided by the consultants, you do what you think is the best thing. I was always at the consultant with different things to do with my bowel and was it was diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease as an IBS. I was seeing a neurologist for headaches. I've always suffered with headaches. I felt very fobbed off when I saw him because he was quite flippant and told me that I'd got migraines in my legs but didn't explain it. And I've since spoken to different consultants since then and they're very, very <laughs> complex by it because they don't understand what he told me I had an MRI scan and not for anything to do with MS or anything he told me in a consultation that I had a few blobs on my brain white blobs but it was nothing to worry about and obviously then I didn't know as much as I know now I was a bit vague about MS so it went on for quite a while I got optic neuritis I got numbness I had pins and needles I lost the feeling from my waist downwards. So when I was out the shower, I was drying my legs and it felt like they didn't belong to me. A bit like I had a, an epidural with my two children and it was a bit like that. And eventually my optic neuritis was really bad. And I finally got a diagnosis by an ophthalmic surgeon that I was seeing at the hospital because I couldn't see properly, who just passed me this paper said yes I think it's MS and just shoved me out into the corridor and I stood there in complete and utter just didn't know what to think I'm quite calm person I'd gone to the consultation on my own as I do I just thought oh right okay and it wasn't until a nurse came over and took me aside and said are you okay and I, I was sort of a bit well yes it's a very strange diagnosis for an optic an ophthalmic surgeon to give me that diagnosis so that was how I found out about MS. And I actually felt better knowing what I had because then I could move forward and get on with my life. I'm very positive about my MS, but I'm very interested in research, which is why I got involved with research because A, I want to help other people have a better diagnosis. And B, I think it, it, it's the way forward without research we we don't find out and we need to to do research and I've got a great respect for all the scientists um, who are doing research not just for MS but for all other illnesses. Thank you so much for sharing that with us a, a really complex and, and and difficult journey for you and I know you were in your 40s by the time you got your diagnosis after what we've just heard there is an incredibly challenging uh, journey interestingly in respect of what Scott was talking about there you also experienced glandular fever as a youngster didn't you yes it was my late teens so I'd say probably 19 I wasn't poorly but I was always suffering with pain and different things but my glandular fever suspected and I had all the symptoms that was sort of towards the end of my you know 19 20 ish I've always had quite a lot of interest in the Epstein-Barr virus because Obviously, I, I knew about it years ago, and it's something that's always interested me as, as a trigger. And now, obviously, it's all in the news, and it's a lot of on the forums is saying that this is the cause of MS. But 
I'm very sceptical about what I read. And, you know, people will say to me, oh, they've found a cure for MS. I'm like, no, they haven't found a cure for MS. Because people believe everything they read in the media. So I, as I said to you, I tend to read the scientific findings and the MS Society and the MS Trust. So yes, so specifically Scott, I was very interested in what he's he's been doing. Very intrigued to learn more and just always keen to learn more about things that scientists come up with. It's very interesting to hear Helen's story because she has accumulated risk factors for MS, both the glandular fever, but also spinal cord impingement works in a similar way. We know that when the spinal cord is damaged, that can sometimes lead to lead MS-like lesions. So it's, it's another risk factor. My mum always thinks that I had MS earlier than what I was diagnosed. And I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia to start with. And I always thought that my spinal operation, because it was it was, you know, then it was a major operation then when I was in my 20s. And the dye has always been at the back of my mind that I was injected with because obviously it's not used now. But I can't find anything out. Medical people aren't very willing to talk about it, obviously, because it's now not used. And I know that's the way forward. Technology moves on and people don't have things that they used to have. But it, it does concern me that maybe the dye that I had injected because it was painful at the time and and did that was that a factor and also the spinal operation was that a factor as well so it does interest me very much and you've alluded to this already Helen but sort of when it comes to research and evidence and you've already said you put great faith in in science and the type of work that we've heard about that Scott's doing here what's important to you as someone who is living with MS about that science about that research I think that is just to have a really good, greater understanding of research and to be included and feel like you're involved in it, which is why I like doing the research. You feel as if you've got a bit more self-worth and that, you know, you help in the future. You're helping, helping people now. I want to help people who've got MS, who are diagnosed early on at a young age, because it is scary. Um, I'm not going to lie. You know, I was in a bit of a daze. Um, when you first get diagnosed, you don't know much about it. You, you rely on people to tell you, but my experience of my MS team isn't the greatest. So I tend to just get on myself and I just inform myself as much as possible. So I don't rely on other people. Obviously, I rely on the, the scientists and the MS society and the MS trust and everything else. But I think you have to get informed it won't come to you. So you have to go out there and find that information out. What Scott's doing is, and a lot of the other scientists, are, you know, with the research is, is incredible and it helps me trem- tremendously. So I'm thankful for that. Thank you, Helen. Um, David, time to come on to you now. I wonder uh, if you could tell us a bit about how important research like Scott's is to the MS Society and obviously also the, you know, imp- the important input that, that people like Helen you know, are making too. We're here for Helen and we're here for around 130,000 other people in the, in the UK with MS. We know, you know, we're here to support people with MS because we know that it's such a relentless, painful and, and disabling condition. And you know, as Helen has, has spoken to, it's really unpredictable and it can be really different for everyone. We are really interested in, in a work like Scott's because we still don't know what causes MS and 
we know that's a really important priority for, for people like Helen and, and other people with MS to know how MS could one day be prevented. As, as Scott's work has shown and, and a lot of other work, uh, we know that there are likely to be a number of factors involved in terms of why people get MS. That would be a mix of your, your genes and environmental factors, such as Scott's spoken to, glandular fever, um, and other environmental factors that we, we know we know more about, such as your exposure to sunlight and other lifestyle factors. So the more understanding we get of these environmental factors, the better the picture becomes about how MS comes about. And knowing that can put us in position to design potential prevention strategies, perhaps in the future. Uh, I think it was really interesting as well to, to hear from Helen about her you know, really difficult journey towards an MS diagnosis. And we do, you know, we unfortunately hear that from so many people with MS. And I think another really valuable piece of, of uh, research like Scott's uh, is that it could potentially give us more surety or, or, or more markers that can aid that diagnosis process. You know, putting that sort of data together uh, into a picture could shorten that, that diagnosis time for people like Helen. And what did you make specifically of Scott's work around glandular fever and the Epstein-Barr virus? I wonder if that was of particular interest. We're really interested in EBV. We know, like Helen said, it's been in the news recently and there's you know more and more links being formed between uh, EBV infection, glandular fever and MS. So, you know, we We'd love to be able to contribute to prevention studies, but potentially uh, looking at, at uh, vaccine trials with, with EBV. And particularly in that case, if, if that was to come about, bearing in mind, as Scott said, there's, there's lots of challenges in that. Research like Scott's will be crucial to inform the design of such trials. For example, you know how, how you manage those, those trials in terms of those vulnerable periods around adolescence that Scott has, has shown. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that sort of leads me quite neatly, I think, onto my next question for you, David, which is how the MS Society uses research and evidence to press for action for change. And I wonder whether you can give us a, an example there of how it works, you know, how it plays out in practice, because this is the nuts and bolts of it, isn't it? This is what we, we want. We want change. We want improvement for people like Helen, um, you know, living with this condition. And as you say, ultimately, hopefully one day to find a cure. Yeah, 100%. It's... The MS Society, it's our vision. Uh, the reason why I work at the MS Society is as we see a future where the world is free from the effects of MS. And I guess the at this point, we know research like Scott's and, and other research has got us to a critical point, which is where we can see a future where no one needs to worry about their MS getting worse. That's on the back of you know, really fantastic progress, particularly in MS uh, over the last 20 to 25 years or so. Uh, research has led us to major advances in, in treatments for MS, something that you know, no other neurological condition has really shown. The action we can take from that is to really build on that success to make treatments more widely available. At the moment, we have over a dozen licensed treatments. Those are for people with one sort of form of MS, which is called relapsing, the relapsing forms of MS. Uh, and there is starting to be some, some treatments for early forms of progressive MS, uh, which is where disability worsens over time. Those treatments that are available now are really directed at people with earlier forms of MS, and they, they all target the immune system. But we know research has shown us that to move towards better treatment and a future where you know, no one has to worry about their MS getting worse, we also need to address other 
uh, factors that are occurring in MS. So what sorts of things is the MS doing in, in, in that sort of area, in that sphere? At the moment, there isn't really treatments for regenerating myelin or protecting the nerves. So we've decided to take action ourselves and set up our octopus clinical trials program. And that's going to be a really revolutionary and, and world-leading program where we're going to have treatments and trials by the end of 2025 for everyone with MS to, to benefit them. It's quite clear how much the MS Society does to try to support people with MS and equally to, to, to look into research and develop research and look for a cure. But I, I just wonder whether enough is being done more widely to, to support the work that you do. You're one organisation. And I know, Helen, when we spoke, you talked a little bit about feeling that MS was sometimes the poor cousin in terms of the attention it gets. Yeah, I mean, I've done a lot of work with the MS Society in the past. I've done a lot of media work and, you know, the people there are amazing in London. I'm very interested in the octopus trial and I get a lot of things from there. MS does sort of get lost a bit, really. Not saying anything against cancer charities or anything, but it's amazing what they do. But I think it just gets forgotten a little bit. We're absolutely, we're we're campaigning as hard as we can to make MS more front and centre in people's thoughts. Uh, we have a Stop MS Appeal, which is really, really ambitious. We're trying to raise £100 million to support research, including our octopus clinical trials. We're not where we want to be in terms of our vision, so more can always be done. I'd like for Helen to, to know that, you know, we're, and I, I'm sure she would know that we're working as hard as we can to, to make MS as visible as possible through our campaigning work, through our work with government, but also our work with partners. We're members of the International Progressive MS Alliance. This joins up other MS societies from uh, countries around the world to come together and to fund research in progressive MS. Uh, and we've been we've been partners, founding partners of that for the last 10 years or so. And we're really starting to see some fantastic international collaborative research coming through. I'll pick up on something that Helen mentioned earlier. Helen, I believe you said, you know, you've been diagnosed with another autoimmune condition, which I think was, was IBS. And we've heard from many people with MS and understanding more from research about the links between autoimmune conditions, including MS. So we've become a partnership with medical research funders or, and other charities who represent other autoimmune conditions, specifically to look at whether there's some underlying mechanisms that we could potentially work on together as different charities can benefit all of our beneficiaries to improve the lives of people with autoimmune conditions, whether they have MS or IBS or type 1 diabetes, for example. Before I go to my last question, Scott, I wondered whether there's anything there you would like to pick up on. Well, I mostly talked at the beginning about risk factors for getting MS. But we do a lot of work as well on the consequence of MS. We can see that the disease burden after an MS diagnosis is greater. People tend to have heart disease at an earlier age, for example. And there's probably underdiagnosed uh, under ischemic heart disease, cor coronary heart disease, because the discomfort is put down to MS rather than a problem with the heart. So it, it, it is important to consider both sides of the MS diagnosis, the consequences. And we've also seen this raised risk of autoimmune diseases like inflammatory bowel disease in people with MS. So it's important to think about managing those conditions along with the MS. Things like depression are a common problem. We've seen that there's a raised suicide rate amongst people with MS. These things need to be tackled alongside the MS itself.
uh, such an important point. Now, finally, to wrap up our, our com uh, conversation, I'd like to put the, uh, the same question to you all, if I may, which is about sort of your whether you know you feel optimistic, Helen. You, I know you're an incredibly optimistic and incredibly positive um, person, but um, I'll, and I'll ask you last, I think, about how optimistic you are about the future and whether one day MS could be uh, a thing of the past. And perhaps I'll put that to you first, Scott, and then David, and then Helen. Well, we're still a little way off prevention, I think. We're, we're moving towards aspects of prevention. It may be possible to protect people from glandular fever, as David suggested. So these are causes of optimism, as are the treatments. We've seen improvements in the treatments in the last 20 years, which are really notable. Of course, with some treatment, there comes problems as well. Some of the uh, immune modifying therapies do increase your risk of serious infections. And so we need to have strategies to make sure we're monitoring carefully to reduce that serious infection risk. And I think we are getting better at that. Yes, I'm optimistic. We are, we are confident we are going to have treatments in trials for everyone with MS and get to us to a point soon where we can see a future for people which will mean that their MS doesn't get any worse. That doesn't mean that a cure is necessarily around the corner, but we think that's the crucial first stage that will give people more certainty about their future. I've got a great respect for the MS Society, David, and I know that you all work really, really hard. I am so optimistic. I'm very positive. I love life. I was always like that anyway, but I think MS has given me that you know, I have so much energy as much as I can. You know, I yes, it's not nice. I'm in pain. Um, I get all sorts of different things. But my view is that, you know, you have to be positive. You have to fight it. And I'm a great believer in mind over matter. I would never say cure because I think we have to be practical. I'd like to see that there would be better treatment and hopefully one day a cure. But I don't think of it as like that. I think you have to be more practical and think that I hope there's better understanding of how to treat it. And with scientists and MS Society, I think we are getting there. And hopefully in years and years and years, maybe there will be. But I live for today and I don't think about the future. So hopefully the future will be brighter for people who are diagnosed. And I thank both of you and Chris for today very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Life Course podcast. You can find out more about how Scott has been working to join the dots between teenage infections and MS on our centre's blog, www.childofourtimeblog.org.uk and about the work of David and his colleagues at the MS Society at www.mssociety.org.uk. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts to hear more about our centre's work, looking at how our health and our lives are intertwined over the Life Course.